This is not a Barbie sermon. Like many of you, I expect I spent part of this last weekend observing Barbenheimer, that invitation from our Hollywood corporate overlords to spend five hours or six, if you count the previews, sitting in a darkened theater staring up at a screen. It was Oppenheimer, it was Barbie, I loved one film, I endured the other. We can talk about it at coffee, coffee hour. If there's, if there's something in both films, though, that, uh, that might tie to this story, it's something about what, this question of what distinguishes good wheat from bad weeds, distinguishing something helpful and productive from the destructive tendencies it might later foment. But this is not that sermon. This sermon is about weeds. Because I've been spending a lot of time with weeds lately. My dad and I spent uh, a couple weekends ago, we spent a lot of time pulling ivy and holly and Himalayan blackberry, all of which had had crept its way onto our little slice of native forest, the little uh, part that we have behind my parents' place on Hackett Creek up on Mount Hood. It's a a marvelous little bit of, of woodland paradise. You walk out the back deck, you cross a little footbridge over a creek, and suddenly you're in the middle of this massive old Douglas fir, western cedar forest, vine maple, sword fern, this little woodland paradise. And of course, the weeds are starting to to creep in. So my parents had a couple advisors come out from Clackamas County Soil and Water Conservation District to help them kind of think through creek preservation, right? There's a whole thing with the water line that I'm not going to go into. And these folks were astounded at the, the variety of native plants, the health of the ecosystem we had back there. And they gave my dad a few tips about what to do about the, the non-native species that were, that were creeping in. And boy, if you know Dave LaRue, you know there's nothing he loves so much as a project. So my dad has been pulling ivy, cutting back bamboo, pulling up the laurel and the boxwood that's crept in from somebody else's yard, battling the never-ending threat of Himalayan blackberry, which is actually, we have learned, Himalayan blackberry, which is a non-native species is really tricky to distinguish from native salmonberry, which is something we want. It's established itself along the creek bed. We're trying to kind of promote its growth. So last weekend, I was out there helping them bag up all this yard waste and take it to the recycle center, and I had good gloves on. And I don't have to tell you, in uh, dry soil with good gloves, pulling up ivy and blackberry is one of the most satisfying things in the world. So I got a little overenthusiastic at one point, pulling this stuff up. And at one point, I realized that what I was pulling up was not the insidious blackberry, but was actually the salmonberry that we were trying to encourage. And I did my best to kind of like shove it back into the soil. Like, oh, please don't, please don't fail me here. But I learned, I had acted too hastily, and I had learned for myself the dangers of trying to eradicate weeds that look just like the wheat that you're trying to grow. As Jesus says to his disciples in this parable from Matthew's gospel, in pulling up the weeds, you might uproot the wheat along with them. So let them alone. Let them both grow together until harvest time. And then the landowner says, I will tell the reapers, collect the weeds first, bind them into bundles to be burned, and gather the wheat into my barns. Distinguishing good wheat from bad weeds turns out to be a really tricky thing to do. And Jesus seems to suggest not only that we should have a little bit of caution, a little bit of humility when it comes to distinguishing weeds from wheat, he seems to suggest that even the weeds might have a role to play in God's garden. That's a tricky one for me. Maybe that's a principle that works for wheat growing. I've never been a wheat grower, I couldn't tell you. That is a lousy principle for native habitat management, letting the weeds go, right? You know as well as I do, if you let the invasives get the upper hand, they will take over. I've seen Himalayan blackberries destroy a barn. 
But the landowner in Jesus' parable is only concerned about one thing. He is just concerned about the thriving of his wheat, about the health of his good seed. That's way more important than he says than some pure, spotless, immaculate, weedless field. This parable may not be very helpful as gardening advice. That's probably a sign that it's really about something else. Jesus' disciples have been hard at work when he tells them this parable. They've been going up and down the countryside. They're teaching, they're preaching, they're healing people in his name. They're planting a bunch of good seeds. And they're starting to see some really interesting return on their labor. And they're also getting pushback for the first time. They're discovering places, people, whole villages sometimes that refuse to hear them, that run them out of town on a rail. Everybody can see that there's something a little bit dangerous about this Jesus guy with his radical preaching about equality and resistance to power and the ways of the, of the kingdom of God. So my guess is that some of the disciples are rising to the bait and starting to get into arguments with their detractors. They're probably getting into some, uh, some debate sessions. For the first time, they experience what it's like to be part of a movement that has enemies. Some of them very powerful enemies. So what do we do about that? They come to Jesus. What do we do about our enemies? What, about, what do we do about the problem people? The people who have joined us, but for all the wrong reasons, and we know they're wolves in sheep's clothing that are going to undermine this project at the end. What do we do about the people who are coming for us? And he tells this whole series of parables in chapter 13 of Matthew's gospel, We've, we're going to hear it over the next couple of weeks, all these parables about what the kingdom of God is really like. He tells them about soil. He talks with them about, about seeds. He talks about pearls that are found in fields and mustard seeds and small measures of yeast that are worked diligently into the dough. The work is not showy. The work is not spectacular, he says. It's laborious, it's boring, and it's hard. It's working with small stuff all the time, not the big stuff. It's futzing around on the borders and the margins with frustrating people who don't seem to matter very much in the grand scheme of things and knowing that you, you may never see the fruit of your work. You're probably going to end up handing it off to, for somebody else to finish. That is the kingdom of God, he tells them. That is the kingdom of heaven. It's not the grand revelation at the end of the age when the sheep and the goats are separated down. The kingdom of heaven is not something that comes down from the sky on the last day when vindication happens for the righteous and the wicked are sent weeping away. The kingdom of heaven is not the final product. It's the destination. It's not the destination. It's the process of getting there. The kingdom of heaven is the work. It's not the reward. It's pulling weeds all day until you can't see on the sweat and the grime, and then getting up the next day and doing it all over again. It's knowing, more to the point, it's knowing when to leave the weeds alone because the seedlings are just starting to come up and you don't want to disturb them. It's the tilling and the watering and the fertilizing and the pruning. And while you trust that you're working towards some kind of harvest, some kind of ultimate goal, you are asked, he says, to check your ambitions at the door and realize that you are not going to be around to see that harvest when it comes in. That crop is going to be gathered by somebody else someday, and the stuff that you thought you were planting might look nothing like what eventually comes back up. I think about that sometimes when I walk through Kempton Hall on my way home, and I pass these two portraits on either side of the wall. Dr. Kempton, who is Trinity's rector in the to teens, 20s, 30s, somebody will check me on those. Bishop Dagwell, his bishop at the time, they're staring at each other across the, across the hall, and I think, gosh, these guys were here for a long time, and they planted a bunch of seeds in this cathedral. What would they think of what I'm doing with their seeds? 
would they recognize this place? I mean, it, it causes me not a little, I, you know, I smile, I wave, I say, I hope that I'm not like messing up your guys' field. But it's all guesswork, right? It was guesswork for them, it's guesswork for us now, it's guesswork, it's gambling all the way down. None of us knows what we're doing half the time. We do the best we can with what we think we know. But as God says to Isaiah in this first reading this morning, I am the first and the last. And we know there's a lot of room in between the beginning and the end of a story. I am the beginning and the end, he says, and there's a whole bunch of middle for you to muck around in. I think this parable that Jesus tells, I think this is a parable about the middle. It's about muddling through the middle of something, doing the best you can with the limited information you have. There's a famous prayer that is sometimes attributed to the, the martyred Archbishop of El Salvador to Oscar Romero. Oscar Romero, incidentally, didn't have anything to do with this prayer. It was composed by a bishop's secretary for a homily that that bishop gave at a memorial service honoring departed priests. Um, and that guy who wrote the prayer actually later became the Bishop of Saginaw a couple years later. His consecration was almost canceled when some people in his diocese complained to the Vatican about sexuality workshops that he was hosting for his clergy. So he had to go to Rome to defend himself to be made a bishop. This was 1980, and Kenneth Unterer had been consulting with psychologists and therapists trying to help him understand how celibate Catholic clergy could navigate their sexuality honestly, openly, talk about it with one another without repressing it. And there were people who had a major problem with that. They accused him of, of, uh, of promulgating profligacy and, and profanity. That did not stop him. Bishop Unterer called that Vatican investigation into his ministry a turning point for him. Having experienced that right out of the gate, he said, freed me of the burden of trying to be held in favor. He said, I am now relieved of worrying about what effect something I do will have on my image. Now before I speak out, he says, I only ask myself two questions. Is it true? And will it be for the good of the church? Is it true? And will it be for the good of the church? We might say, for the good of God's kingdom, for the good of God's people, for the good of God's world. So he spoke out. He was not a popular bishop among the conservative set in the Catholic Church. He spoke out on birth control. He spoke out on women's ordination, on equality and egalitarianism in ways that, frankly, I think are unthinkable for a Roman Catholic bishop today. And this is his prayer. It helps, Bishop Untener wrote, it helps now and then to step back and take the long view. The kingdom of God is not only beyond our efforts, it is even beyond our vision. We accomplish, only in our we accomplish in our lifetime only a tiny fraction of the magnificent enterprise that is God's work. Nothing we do is complete, which is a way of saying the kingdom always lies beyond us. No statement says all that can be said. No prayer fully expresses our faith. No confession brings perfection. No pastoral visit brings wholeness. No program accomplishes the, church, the church's mission. No set of goals or objectives includes everything. This is what we are about. We plant the seeds that someday will grow. We water seeds already planted, knowing that they hold future promise. We lay foundations that will need further development. We provide yeast that produces effects far beyond our capabilities. We cannot do everything. And there is a sense of liberation when you realize that. 
It enables you to do something, he says, and to do it very well. We may never see the end results, but that's the difference between being the master builder and being the worker. We are workers. We are not master builders. We are ministers, not messiahs. We are prophets of a future that is not our own. We are prophets of a future that is not our own. So be really careful about pulling up weeds, because pulling weeds is really satisfying and really tempting, especially in religious communities that tend to be obsessed with perfection and policing. I can't tell you what the next years will bring. None of us can foresee the future. It might be that we're up here sowing a bunch of noxious weeds that somebody's going to have to come through and sort out and eventually gather up and burn. I don't know. But in, in Jesus' parable, even the weeds have a role to play, right? The traditional interpretation of the last line of the parable, collect the weeds first, gather them into bundles to be burned. The traditional interpretation is that's a kind of weeping and gnashing of teeth thing, right? That the weeds represent the children of the evil one who will be sent to everlasting damnation when the harvest comes. Matthew himself puts that interpretation in Jesus' mouth. We trimmed it out of this morning's reading because I don't like that interpretation. Because I wonder if there's not a different way of thinking about the weeds, right? Jesus said, or the landowner in the parable that is ascribed to Jesus says, bind them in bundles to be burned. That might mean throwing them on the fire for destruction. That's how Matthew thinks it ought to be interpreted. I think that line, bind them in bundles to be burned, could also mean make them fuel for the fire. That's actually how we're going to bake the bread that the wheat makes. The weeds themselves are going to be our fuel. Who's to say? Right? The story is God's story from beginning to end. And if I know anything about God, it's that a couple noxious weeds are not going to stand in God's way. We come in for our brief hour upon the stage and do a little mucking around in the fields or the gardens, and then we hand the work off to somebody else who can then take it a few steps further. There's this great line at the end of the Barbie movie. You knew I couldn't keep this out of the sermon, right? She's a great weed, Barbie. You can't keep her out. It's at the very end of the film, Barbie's having this existential crisis, she's having these looming fears of death, she's learning to cry, she's gaining self-consciousness, she has a nasty run-in with a patriarchy. So she encounters, I mean, it's the most theological scene I've seen in a long time. Barbie meets her maker. She stands before her god, who is Ruth Handler, the woman who created Barbie. And they have this conversation, Barbie's looking to her creator to, to guide her, to give her some answers. Basically, I mean, even if, even if it's just like a blessing on what she's going to do, and Ruth basically refuses to do it, right? I, she, what, what she says to Barbie is, I always knew you would surprise me. And then she says something really interesting. She says, we mothers stand still so that our daughters can look back and see how far they've come. That's another American prophet, I think. There's a whole, there's a whole lot of wheat in that field. And there's a lot of weeds too, right? I, I don't know. Is, is Barbie a wheat or is she a weed? You get to make that decision. Um, and I think at the end analysis, who's, who's to say? The, the message of the parable though is don't be too hasty to judge this stuff. You might think you know what's going on. You might think you know better. Check that impulse, maybe. Let the weeds and the wheat grow up together, the farmer says. We are prophets of a future that is not our own. So who's to say what's wheat and what's weeds? Who's to say the weeds might not end up having a purpose as well? A woman admitted to me at the door at 8 o'clock. She's got a gorgeous garden. I've been out to see her garden. She's an incredible gardener. And she says, you know, sometimes I just let the weeds grow because I think they're pretty. What better reason to, to err on the side of mercy than because, frankly, mercy is prettier? 
Nothing gets lost in God's economy. Nothing is wasted. So whether it's wheat or whether it's weeds, I mean, on a summer's day, if you've ever driven through eastern Washington, that inland highway, you've driven through fields of wheat. And there's a bunch of weeds in there, too. I used to, I used to get up to shenanigans in that wheat. I know, I know it's in those fields. And when you're driving through on a summer's day with the breeze blowing and the wheat and the weeds blowing in the wind, I mean, my gosh, the kingdom of heaven which is to say that field, right, this world, this sorry old world full of sin and strife and suffering and grace and beauty. I mean, the kingdom of heaven, this world is a spectacular place to be.